You're listening to Pastola Endocrine Podcast with your host, Dr. Sirapoon McKay. Hello and welcome back to Pestola Podcast. We will discuss the differences in diagnosing Cushing's disease in children as compared with textbook cases and adult cases. This includes signs and symptoms, biochemical testing, and imaging for pituitary tumors. Joining us is Dr. David Paul, a pediatric endocrinologist at Texas Children's and Baylor in Houston. Dr. Paul has over 30 years of experience in pediatric endocrinology. Welcome, Dr. Paul. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. First off, Dr. Paul, could you give us a definition of what, what is Cushing? Cushing's would be a, the constellation of signs and symptoms associated with excessive uh, or superphysiologic amounts of systemically delivered glucocorticoids over time, um, again, leading to the signs and symptoms that would therefore be called Cushing's, um, specifically what could be endogenous or exogenous. Now, how does a physician recognize some of the signs and symptoms of pediatric Cushing disease. I must say, and we all know from nearly daily experience, that we do struggle with the classic symptoms and signs and symptoms and signs of Cushing's that would be specific as opposed to the children that we frequently see with uh, the, who are overweight or obese who have very, who frequently have symptoms or signs of Cushing's that are nonspecific. So one can pull up very easily a list of all the signs and symptoms of Cushing's. Um, and, and we all know these uh, that we've heard over and over. I think specifically for children, from the literature and what available reviews have been written from centers that see lots of pediatric Cushing's, Clearly, uh, poor growth is a specific sign of Cushing's for children. Um, excessive weight gain, obviously, 95 to nearly all children with Cushing's have excessive weight gain. And I would say probably the same, anywhere from 85 to 100% of children will have subnormal growth velocity if one has the height data readily available to show that. Obviously, the older children who are already adolescent age when they develop Cushing's may be beyond a bone age at which a poor growth velocity would be physiologic as opposed to being due to the Cushing's. Um, But the vast majority, if not all children at a young enough age, will not be growing well at the same time they're gaining weight, which is really the hallmark of Cushing's in children. if, if you don't have the height data, there is evidence from the NIH group that the vast majority of children will have a height standard deviation score below zero, or at least below that which would be appropriate for their mid-parental height SD. I see. Other things to look for would be uh, delayed or arrested puberty on physical exam. 
Um, we don't see proximal myopathy, weakness, and, and atrophy of proximal muscle groups like you see in adults. That seems to take a more long-standing hypercortisolism. And another one would be to look for evidence of decreased bone, mineral density, history of fractures, um, back pain symptoms, symptom-wise. And then really another thing is to look at the face and the skin, because that's where you're going to probably see the best evidence of hypercortisolism in terms of fat deposition and the, all the effects that we see of excessive cortisol on the skin. Could you clarify what you see on the skin? So um, stria itself is listed as approximately 50% in children. The younger the child, the less likely you are to see stria. Um, the classic stria, of course, are violaceous, red, purple, and the bands typically are widened um, over a half a centimeter is the classic. But that takes time. We don't always see that because the kids that may present after only six months or a year Whereas the average child that develops severe classic textbook stria may need hypercortisolism for two, three years. Um, so we don't always see the classic stria, especially in young children. Otherwise, you would see evidence of thinning of the skin, hirsutism or hypertrichosis, hyperpigmentation, and sometimes the hyperpigmentation is very bizarre in its pattern. And of course, that's only in, in ectopic ACTH or pituitary Cushing's. Nice. And then, uh, so hyperpigmentation, unusual hair and thinning of the skin um, would be the things. And then acne. The acne, according to the dermatologist, is a special form called steroid acne where the lesions are sort of monomorphic. They all look similar, and they're papillary or pustular, but they look different than typical acne. That's very helpful. What, a, what biochemical diagnostic evidence of hypercortisolism would you see in the pediatric Cushing's disease? So biochemical, so when you suspect Cushing's, um, based on the history, the physical, vital signs, hypertension, etc. When you suspect Cushing's, the first step is to think through a list of conditions that can look like Cushing's, but is not due to chronic hypercortisolism. These are historically called pseudo-Cushing's. Nowadays, it's called physiologic non-neoplastic hypercortisolism. The, the most common would be just sim simple severe obesity, um, adolescents with amenorrhea and polycystic ovary syndrome, poorly controlled type 2 diabetes is another classic group, alcoholism, which we fortunately don't see in children really, but it's really the morbidly obese children um, and polycystic ovary syndrome. And this is called pseudo-Cushing's or physiologic non-neoplastic. So if you have enough index of suspicion. And I must say, you really have to think about it and test for it because we don't want to miss Cushing's in children. 
But the very first screening test for hypercortisolism would be a urinary uh, cortisol, so a 24-hour urine cortisol, or known as free cortisol. And that's to look for actual evidence of excessive production of cortisol. The second two would be to look of lack of diurnal variation, and that would be a nighttime, late-night um, salivary cortisol. And the third would be, um, and part of that diurnal variation analysis would be actually a late-night venous sample for cortisol, especially if you could do this while sleeping. And then the third would be to look for lack of, di of suppression of the cortisol using initially a one milligram overnight deck suppression test. Now, tell us about the concept of pituitary centers of excellence. What does that mean for patients with pituitary uh, microadenoma um, in terms of treatment and evaluation? So if could I... you tell us a bit more about the, um, the test you mentioned? Urinary free cortisol is, is obtained, of course, 24 hour. This can be done as an outpatient. Um, the testing, all these tests need to be done when children are not stressed, when they're not sick, and when they're not exercising. So they really need to collect the data at home when they're really chill, um, not sick with as little stress as possible. Um, so you would advise during the 24 hours of the urine collection, there's no exercise beyond? No exercise. I, you know, even if they're doing repetitive video games that is high, high intense, theoretically, that could be a stressor that could raise cortisol, theoretically. Um, any kind of stress, you just ask the parents to help the child have a very relaxed 24 hours. Um, also, they shouldn't drink excessively. Excessively, The last patient I had uh, in the last six months, my first 24-hour urine cortisol was through the roof, and that's because he actually was drinking a lot of over five liters a day of fluid. So less than three liters a day of fluid, you get falsely elevated free cortisol. The salivary cortisol has to be done late at night when the child is tired they're ready to go to sleep, and they have to collect it according to the instructions. You have to give them the written instructions. Again, no stress, not sick, no exercise. And I ask them to do it also. I don't want them to take a nap in the evening and then wake up and do the salivary cortisol. I've actually seen falsely elevated cortisols that way. So stay awake, chill, relaxed, nice, easy evening, and then collect the saliva according to the instructions, bring it into the lab the next morning. When, when you say, do, yeah. May I ask when you say um, bedtime or before um, going to bed, is there a particular time you're thinking, you know, classically we hear about um, 11 p.m., but young children may go to bed earlier. Right. So I would ba base it on the age that they go to bed naturally. And then now we have COVID time. Yes. And, and COVID time, actually doing a late night salivary cortisol or a venous sampling of cortisol late at night 
is a problem in shift workers. They don't have diurnal variation, and you can easily have falsely elevated cortisol levels. And now we hear about COVID sleeping, where the teenagers and the older children are just all over the map with their sleeping, staying up late at night, waking up at noon, one o'clock in the afternoon. So hopefully they have a circadian sleep pattern. If they do, whatever time it is that they are ready to go to sleep and they are tired, they've been up all day, that's the best time to get the salivary cortisol. The one milligram DEX suppression test, again, one milligram late at night, 11 o'clock midnight, bedtime. Um, and then they should wake up the next morning, eight to nine o'clock in the morning and get a cortisol level done and a dexamethasone level done, which is very important. The last patient I had recently did not have a normal overnight dexamethasone level. It was low, so that negated the usefulness of the test because he actually failed the test. His, his cortisol the next morning was high. Could you comment a little bit between the sal um, salivary and the venous cortisol? Right. So um, Dr. Stratakis at the NIH, I believe, was the first to really start promoting, based on his experience at the NIH, with doing so what he does apparently is he'll do the 24-hour urine cortisols times two or three. If they're elevated and he's convinced the history, the physical, and the 24-hour urine speaks for Cushing's, he admits at the NIH and they put an IV in in the afternoon um, and they allow three, four, five hours to go by. So the stress of the IV is gone. Again, not sick, no stress, relaxed easy evening. Once they're asleep, in the adult literature, they'll do this when they're awake. It's a late night venous cortisol, no stress. In the children, he tries to do it when they're asleep. And the cutoff for what's abnormal actually seems to vary in the adult literature based on asleep or awake. So he'll do a sound asleep venous cortisol level. And if it's above 1.8 to 2, that has a high level of sensitivity and specificity for uh, Cushing's, lack of diurnal variation. There's cutoffs of 2. There's a cutoff of 4. The adult literature in the awake state, a cutoff of 7.5. So the cutoffs do vary. You can find these in the, liter in the literature. But that overnight, that late night serum sleeping cortisol or non-stress cortisol late at night, in his opinion, is actually the gold standard test for showing lack of diurnal variation, which is a hallmark of Cushing's. Any other biochemical tests we need to discuss, Dr. Paul? Well, so after, so after you do these initial tests showing hypercortisolism, the next testing that has to be done is an ACTH level. Mm -hmm. And that should be in the morning. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be fasting. Um, eight or nine in the morning, soon after waking up, uh, ACTH blood level. And actually, if you can do more than one, that's optimal. But if the ACTH, le the ACTH level then dictates on the algorithm which pathway you take. Is it ACTH-dependent Cushing's 
or is it clearly primary adrenal Cushing's, which would be an ACTH level that's suppressed, undetectable, generally below 5 to 10? ACTH-dependent Cushing's, if it's above 29 to 30, clearly points towards ACTH dependency. If it's in between that, it's indeterminate. And then you go down the pathway. If it's ACTH-dependent Cushing's, then would be looking for a pituitary lesion on MRI and considering CRH stimulation test, high-dose DEX suppression test to look for ectopic versus pituitary Cushing's. So it, it gets muddy if your ACTH level is in the indeterminate region where you may have to do CRH testing, high-dose DEX suppression testing, the old-fashioned little test, um, and petrosal sinus sampling, of course, will be in the mix. That is largely based on the pituitary center of excellence, and whoever you're going to send the child to, if you think it's pituitary Cushing's, as to whether to do petrosal sinus sampling. What are the hallmarks that patients um, should look for to say that that's a center of excellence? Right. So there's now some literature that actually spells out criteria and definitions of pituitary centers of excellence. There's an article that came out um, in 2017 in the journal Pituitary that talks about criteria for centers of excellence. Um, this essentially would be an endocrinologist who is evaluating Cushing's on a regular basis and has a national recognition as an endocrinologist who is a Cushing's specialist. The neurosurgeon should be somebody who's trained in pituitary surgery preferably fellowship trained for a year or more in a high volume center. And there's, according to this definition, the pituitary surgeon should be operating, should be seeing upwards of 50 or even 100 cases a year of pituitary Cushing's. Uh, and so that, so it speaks for a high volume program. And that's because in children in particular, the incidence of, of, of Cushing's is on the order of one to two cases per million patients per year. And, you know, of that group, well, that's Cushing's in general. 10% of Cushing's in the nation, in the, in the world, are pediatric age Cushing's. So you're taking a rare condition and bringing it down to an even more rare condition. And then ectopic Cushing's, Cushing's is only about 1% of all adolescent Cushing's. So now when you start thinking about evaluating for ectopic, it's exceedingly rare. So if you're not in a center that sees Cushing's on a regular basis, all this testing becomes more difficult to interpret and to perform reliably. I see. And then when you get into doing petrosal sinus sampling, it's not an easy procedure for an IR people. It, IR folks that do this on a regular basis should be the only people doing this. We talked about uh, biochemical testing. Could, could you discuss a little bit the nuances of the modern imaging approaches to pituitary microadenoma, especially with regards yeah. to Cushing's? 
Currently, most centers are using a three Tesla powered MRI scanner. Uh, the newer scanners are more powerful, coming up to seven Tesla, which is a bigger magnet and gives you a greater resolution. The current protocol is a three Tesla T1 weighted um, post gadolinium contrast dynamic uh, image where there's rapid sequencing after gadolinium enhan uh, enha contrast enhancement. Um, the newest thing that is being looked at is what's called spoiled or fast spoiled gradient recalled echo as opposed to the spin echo, which is traditional. And this new way of, of doing the echo for MRI allows a greater resolution where you can actually see lesions down to one millimeter in diameter. Um, and this is now up-and-coming technology for MRI scanners. The other thing that's being looked at, especially for people that require recurrent MRIs for following, is to actually do a T2 image as opposed to a T1 image and don't even use contrast. So people are looking at T2 imaging without contrast to find pituitary adenomas. And then the next thing that's being looked at is molecular or functional imaging using uh, FDG PET MRI hybrid technology, where they're using the standard uh, PET imaging uh, for functional imaging. Um, and because they found that pituitary adenomas light up on FDG PET imaging, incidentally, when they're doing the imaging for other oncological reasons. And when they looked at it, they found, oh my gosh, the patient has a pituitary adenoma. So functional imaging is being looked at. And the newest one is a carbon 11 methionine PET MRI hybrid functional imaging, which lights up these pituitary adenomas apparently uh, quite commonly. Uh, and the PET MRI feature gives you the high resolution to actually see the adenoma. So those are some of the new, new technologies for imaging for pituitary adenomas. Again, that uh, it's, um, points to your need for a center for excellence. Those are very, some of those tests are not readily available in, um, in the community. That's correct. And, and, you know, Texas Children's has a three Tesla. Um, my patient I had recently did not show the lesion uh, over at a local institution where I sent the child. They did see a lesion they, that they suspected, and they did a petrosal sinus that actually showed evidence of central ACTH Cushing's. Um, but... Um, you know, pituitary centers of excellence. I looked this up recently, and we there's only one listed in Texas, and that's at Baylor College of Medicine. Um, there are very few of these centers. Most of them are East Coast, West Coast, and then you have Emory. So there's not very many of these centers. I don't know if Dallas has a pituitary centers of excellence. It did not show up on a website. Dr. Paul, thank you so much for giving us such a in-depth update on management of Cushing's, particularly with all the new insights on Cushing's disease. 
For more information about Cushing Syndrome and the information regarding the next Pestola podcast, please visit pestola.org.